0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I am thrilled to bring a conversation that, as you listen to this, you will see I got wrapped up into. I got to talk with Dane Jensen. He's the author of the book, The Power of Pressure. And I think, like most people, hearing the word pressure, you have a negative, almost even kind of a shoulder Hunching, pressure, no, stress, no. But that is the reaction that Dane is fighting against to show that pressure actually will allow you to perform at your best. We set this up where we talk about what pressure is and isn't, and then how to turn pressure into a superpower instead of something that causes stress. So I will say, I'm just going to get out of the way and enjoy this conversation with Dane Jensen. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Dane Jensen. Dane, welcome to the show. Dane, thanks so much, Eric. It's great to be here. So (laughs) I I get a lot of pitches for podcast guests, and obviously you made it through because you're here. But uh, it caught my eye instantly with the word that is in the title of your book, the word pressure. And the the title being the power of pressure and the subtitle being how to reduce stress, perform at your best and master the moments that matter. And that word pressure, I just, I instantly thought of, you know, people talking about, well, you know, coal is made into diamonds through pressure. I'm like, yeah, but they don't like it. Right. (laughs) So (laughs) it's, it's an interesting word. It instantly hooked me. And you know what? I don't think we've ever done a show on that topic before. So I'm really interested to have this conversation with you. Awesome.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, listen, the whole notion of the book, and and I think one of the lines that people often latch onto in the title is, is why pressure isn't the problem, it's the solution. Which I know is a little bit provocative. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm keen to get into it and, and talk about the notion of, Hey, do the diamonds really enjoy being formed or do they just kind of have to go with it because there's no other option? Uh, I think think it's a great metaphor that we could unpack a little bit.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and let's do that. Let's start by setting some context here. I think that, you know, from going through the book, obviously, and even, you know, just reading the cover and the jacket and everything like that, it's, it's obvious that you've talked to a lot of people, especially. High performers, people in high pressure situations like Navy SEALs, for example, or Olympic gold medalists. But then I love that you throw in executives and busy parents and kind of lump them all together because, because, because every busy parent wants to hear that their life is as stressful as a Navy SEAL or a gold medalist, right? Yeah, I, you
1: know, listen, I think pressure is a universal human experience. I, you know, I always talk, I joke, it's, you know, we think it's death and taxes, but I, I do think pressure is on that list as well, right? I, I don't think it's unique to Navy SEALs or emergency physicians or, you know, elite athletes. I think everybody experiences pressure. And you're right. That was how I kind of approached the the book. You know, the book developed pretty organically, actually. I, I was teaching, as I have for years, on the topic of resilience. And I started asking this question almost kind of informally, just it was a good icebreaker, you know, at lunch, at break, which was what is the most pressure you've ever been under? And, you know, almost from the jump, the first time I asked that question, I realized that it's actually a kind of a, sounds kind of hokey, but it's almost like a magic portal, that question, because on the other side of it, there is an amazing story. It doesn't matter who you ask that question of, there's an amazing story on the other side of it. And I think because pressure is a universal human experience, One of the things that I've learned once I started asking that with a lot more discipline and asking, you know, follow up questions around what made it high pressure? What did you do? Did that help? Did it hurt? What did other people do? Did that help? Did that hurt? You know, I came to this conclusion that everybody experiences pressure. The pressure they experience spans the vast range of human experience from the Olympic Games to, you know, caring for children and aging parents at the same time. And amidst that vast human experience, actually, there are a few patterns in there, and it's the patterns that I'm interested in, right? What can we learn? Yes, it's very different how pressure manifests depending on your, your life, but but actually, there's some stuff that's pretty common that we can all learn and, and use.
0: So if I hear you right, you're saying that pressure itself is a universal experience. The levels of pressure we experience, as well as our own chosen let's say, reaction or responses to that pressure then changes what that pressure does to us?
1: Yeah, I, I think, so if I take that one one piece at a time, so I think, yes, pressure is a universal human experience, full stop. I think the levels of pressure that people experience, man, there's a really interesting coffee chat in that one because, you know, the way we experience pressure is really as a response to a situation. It's, it's not found in the situation itself. You know, two people can be in the exact same situation and one person's excited and the other person's terrified. You know, it's the response that really dictates the level to which I feel pressure. And so I think you could argue that different people do feel different levels of pressure depending on a variety of factors, but but, you know, how they kind of react to it. And that's the piece that's most important right, is once we get to that place where we're like, oh, the pressure's not out there, the pressure's in here, and we can start to recognize that our ability to change the way we relate to the situations we find ourselves in is really where people start to make progress. You know, that's not to say that there aren't certain situations that are more likely to create the internal experience of pressure. And in fact, that was one of the first kind of patterns that started to emerge was, you know, it's actually relatively predictable what will create pressure for people. Because pressure is really a function of three things. Uh, there have to be, you know, some combination of three things in the environment for people to experience pressure. You know, the first one is importance. So if if the outcome of a situation doesn't matter to me, I'm not going to feel any pressure, right? Something has to be important. I have to tag it as important in order for it to start to create pressure. But the second thing that has to be there is uncertainty, you know, because no matter how important something is, if the outcome is completely certain, I'm not going to really experience pressure. It it, it is that combination of, hey, this really matters to me. And I don't know how it's going to turn out. It starts the internal experience of pressure. And then I think the third piece that acts as a bit of a force multiplier on that is volume. You know, just the sheer volume of tasks, of decisions, of distractions that, you know, surround and multiply are important on certain situations. And so when I talk about patterns, I think that was kind of the You know, the first pattern that sort of emerged out of the mist was, hey, hey, it looks very different if you are standing on the start line of an Olympic race versus your pressure comes from, you know, I don't know. I had one guy say he he swam too far from shore in the ocean and he realized he wasn't going to be able to get back because the tide was going out. Right. Very different situations, both characterized by high levels of importance and high levels of uncertainty. Right. You know, so those are the kind of patterns that I think are are really interesting to explore.
0: Well, I think what I found interesting is you use the word volume there as the third point there. And, you know, most people, since we're listening to something right now, they think of the amount of loudness. And I think you meant actually the amount in general, like just the total amount volume, like as in like filling up a, a glass, the volume filled. And I think that those two uses of the word are similar. So for example, it may be that something may have little importance. That the certainty is pretty much there, but I have a wide or deep or both volume, like I'm overloaded, in other words, of tasks. And that all of those tasks cumulatively take on a larger volume and then loudness volume of noise going on in my head, my brain, my, my mental RAM, in other words, is overloaded. And that, that then can be something that can be another indicator of pressure.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, the the way that I kind of think about it, it, you know, in the book, I talk about the pressure equation, which is w- what we just kind of walked through, you know, pressure equals importance times uncertainty, times volume. And I think the multiplication signs between those three are really important because, as you point out, you know, there's there is pressure that comes from like one highly important, highly uncertain thing. And that is the pressure of the Olympic final. That's also the pressure of, you know, the job interview, the sales pitch, the exam. You know, I talk about these as peak pressure moments, and they really are just kind of like violent collisions of importance and uncertainty. And they come, they happen, and then they're done. And, you know, you may experience joy after these moments. You may experience regret and angst after these situations, depending on how they've gone. But you're not feeling pressure anymore, right? They're done. The importance and the uncertainty is is over. It's resolved. There's another type of pressure, which is the one that you're talking about, which which is, you know, maybe the independent items are not highly important, highly uncertain, but there's a ton of them, right? There's just a ton of tasks that we have to get done. There's a lot of decisions that have to be made, usually with a little bit of uncertainty or imperfect information. And it's just that sheer accumulation of the amount of tasks, the amount of decisions. And then to your point around the hum of volume, you know, the amount of distractions that are pulling us away from the more important uncertain stuff, that is what creates pressure over the long haul, right? It's not as acute. It's not like this violent collision of importance uncertainty. It's more about a steady hum, a huge volume of stuff that on its own might not be critical, but put together becomes overwhelming. And so absolutely, both of those are ways that the three factors can combine. And I think what's been really interesting is actually the stuff it takes to perform really well in the first type of situation, that acute kind of peak pressure moment actually is very different than the stuff that is helpful in the long haul of kind of volume and churn and grind. And they're very different skill sets. So I talk about this notion of being pressure and that actually being good at pressure isn't one skill. It's actually two. It's two very different skills for peak pressure versus the grind.
0: Yes. And I'm very interested in that. And in fact, I think then one of the key things especially is... When you're not organized, when you're overloaded, when you're overwhelmed by the sheer volume is when you can lose perspective. And then something that might have been certain will become uncertain, even though nothing's changed factually. And even in fact, it may be unimportant, but it now may seem important. And again, nothing changed factually, but it's your perspective that has changed. Could not agree more.
1: I think you're bang on. Okay. Um, You know, th- these things are all interrelated, right? You know, as the internal experience of pressure unfolds, and again, that can come from importance, from uncertainty, from volume, it, you know, it can kind of start anywhere. So if I feel overwhelmed by the volume of things that I have to tackle all of a sudden they do start to become uncertain like i you know i just don't know if i've got enough time to get these things done it's, it's not because the lottery ticket or it, you know it's not inherent uncertainty but the outcome is now in jeopardy because i'm looking at my list i'm looking at my calendar and i'm going like yeah i don't know if i'm going to be ready for that on thursday or i don't know i'm going to be able to get that done by monday okay now we have some uncertainty in the mix And as that starts to multiply, what happens to us internally, and and this is hardwired, like you, you can't contravene this really, is as pressure rises, as we get more activated as human beings, our attentional focus starts to narrow. And by that, I mean, we start to kind of go into a little bit of an attentional tunnel. And we are able to absorb less and less information. And, and this is, you know, part of the body's sympathetic nervous system. The, the job of the sympathetic nervous system is to ready us to handle high pressure situations. Unfortunately, it's not a particularly finely tuned mechanism. You know, Dr. Herbert Benson at a Harvard showed decades ago that, you know, this system that originally evolved to handle kind of acute physical threats, like the, you know, the proverbial saber toothed tiger. It actually responds in, in a similar way to what we just talked about, right? Just a lot of volume, a lot of input, and so the idea behind this was that your attention would get laser focused in on this thing that was like a mortal threat to you, and all of the other information would get filtered out, so that you were one hundred percent single task focused on this thing that that you had to either you know punch in the face or run away from really fast. The challenge to your point is. When that comes from volume, the uncertainty starts to add to the mix. As your attention gets narrower and narrower, it actually becomes hard to see beyond the walls of the one thing that you are paying attention to in that moment. And so the stuff that's outside of those walls of attention, it just kind of looms in the periphery and it starts to create ancillary pressure because now we don't only have the pressure of the thing we're focused on. We also have this perpetual feeling like there's other stuff that, that we can't remember or is outside of our attentional field that we're not taken care of. So, you know, there can absolutely be this vicious cycle that we get into that's kind of mutually reinforcing.
0: Uh, I love what you just said, because this goes back to something that we talk about. Well, honestly, we've talked for years on this show about this, and this is a great way to put it. Let me see if I can tie this all together real quick, that it's great to have these ultra-focused moments where, you are blocking out all distractions. You are focused for better or for worse. Let's say you're in the zone. You're, you're in the flow state. Let's, let's call it that. Cause a lot of people do that. You're in the flow state. Like, for example, right now I'm only talking to you. I'm not thinking about everything yep. else I have to do today or the rest of the week or what i am I going to do this weekend, et cetera. Although I will admit all those things are in my head, but through practice, through things we'll talk about later. I have made it possible for me to stay here in the moment and just talk to Dane. However, I can only do that if I have some sort of organized handle on those other things, the possible things, the, the things that I've already identified and named and marked down time for and what the next step is and all those kind of good, you know, productivity stuff settings in a task manager or a project manager, except on a calendar, all of those different tools working together to keep me organized on track on task and actually checking things off to completion. Because when none of that is happening or there's a big, vague, amorphous blob of various projects and roles and relationships in flux, then how am I supposed to sit here and figure out what to do with the fight or flight from this lion.
1: Yeah, well, and I I think, you, you know, you've hit on something, Eric, which is, you know, there's a difference between productive focus and unproductive focus. And I think, you know, productive focus is kind of focus that's imbued with a sense of consciousness and free will. Like, I am choosing where to focus my attention and I am conscious of, you know, where I am focusing it for maximum effort. And I have strategies that I'm using to accomplish that. I'm tuning out, you know, maybe I'm on airplane mode and I've, you know, put my do not disturb and all that kind of good stuff. Then there is the other kind of focus, which is focus that is, kind of visited upon you because of our physiological responses to pressure, but we we don't get a choice. It's like we get thrown and our attention narrows and all of a sudden our bodies made a choice that like, I'm only going to focus on this because I can't pay attention to all that other stuff. It's just too overwhelming. And over the long haul of a life, we see this in a number of different ways, right? Like this is the hard driving Zach going through their thirties who all of a sudden has a heart attack. And then the hospital goes, holy crap, you know, I was so laser focused on the job that I actually couldn't see what was going on with my health or my relationships or my family. And, you know, and we talk in that way all the time, right? We hear people go, "I, "I, you know, I just can't pay attention to that right now. That's literal. Like when we are under pressure, we literally can't pay attention to everything, right? We can't pay attention to our job and our family and our health. And so when pressure gets visited upon us over a long period of time through that long haul. We can get stuck in this attentional tunnel where all we can do is pay attention to the stuff that's right in front of our face. And, you know, the divorce comes along and the heart attack comes along. And it's only after that forced perspective shift where people go like, Oh my God, I was missing paying attention to all this stuff because I just couldn't get there. So I, you know, I think there is a difference between, you know, a choiceful application of focus in a way that is productive versus I'm swimming in the soup of pressure. And my body is forcing me to narrow my attention in to the exclusion of things that I should be paying attention to.
0: Yeah, well, and I think that goes back then to being ambidextrous, to having the skill, the the multiple skills that is to handle pressure in a peak pressure moment or moments, but then also over the long haul. And and I honestly think this is a great time for your book to come out because we've all been through the course of the pandemic, kind of in both those situations, alternating daily and even hour to hour in in a sense.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, the last 20, I was a joke with my marketing guy, like you did a great job setting the stage for this book to come out with this global (laughs) pandemic, uh, you know, over the last 20 months, Uh, because, yeah, I think it's given all of us a very visceral and personal experience with both the pressure over the long haul you know we're we're now approaching two years uh, not too far up since the first cases were identified overseas you know so I think we've all had that experience of what it means to navigate profound uncertainty around highly important things like financial security or health over a long period and then peppered in that long haul you know for everybody I know have been some pretty high stakes high uncertainty moments, right? That There were real inflection points for them in terms of how things were going. So yeah, I think it's been a bit of a trial by fire in terms of our experiences with pressure and how we, how we navigate
0: it, for sure. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search So that's a pretty good, I think, setup in terms of context, as well as kind of, you know, identifying the universal situation and the different kind of flavors and options there are there. But I'd love to then say, OK, how do we become ambidextrous? How do we start to get a handle on thriving even in peak pressure moments as well as the long haul?
1: Yeah, I think it's a it's a great pivot point. And, you know, if people are listening, they might be going like, hold on, I thought we started this, you know, by Dean saying, you know, pressure isn't the problem, it's the solution. And, you know, we've now spent 20 minutes talking about how terrible this is and attentional tunneling and, you know, cortisol and stress response. And I think that, you know, the thing that I I always want to leave as the headline for folks when I'm talking about this stuff is pressure can be either a problem or a solution, you know, and almost everything associated with pressure is a bit of a double-edged sword, right? Pressure itself is a double-edged sword. You know, we only have to reflect on the last 20 months to recognize some of the downsides of pressure, right? We see it in, you know, the mental health of people that are going through challenging situations at work and at home. And I think most of us see it in, you know, the emotional state, that the tension that's been being carried around for the past 20 months. So I think, you know, absolutely pressure can be a problem if, we let our default responses to pressure dominate, right? We used to think there was only one response to pressure, that fight, freeze, or flee response. What we now actually know is that the body is equipped with a bit of a repertoire of stress responses. There are you know, a bunch of different responses that pressure can evoke in the body. And if we are conscious about it, we get to kind of choose a little bit, you know, how do we want to respond? And the reason we talk about pressure as the solution is because really at the end of the day, pressure is energy. Like, pressure is just a form of energy. And I, I, I mean that, just it's chemical energy. Like, your body goes into an energized state when it experiences pressure. You get adrenaline, you get cortisol. These are things that bring your energy level up in your body. We feel it cognitively, physically, emotionally when we're under pressure. And so if we can actually channel that energy productively, it can be an assist, right? I mean, where do more world records get set than anywhere else in the world of sport? They get set at the Olympics. Why? Because there's pressure. Right, it, th- Those records don't fall without pressure. It's the pressure that actually gives people the energy to do something that they haven't done before. And so when we talk about this ability to use pressure productively, I am not talking about making pressure enjoyable. I think that's a really important thing for people to kind of get to first is there is no magic switch. There is no secret recipe for, I'm not just going to like survive this. I'm going to love it. Like, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to, you know, you talk to an Olympic athlete in the 20 minutes before an Olympic final, the vast majority of them are going like, how do I get out of here? Why did I decide to do this? Why do I put myself through this? Oh my God, this feels horrible. You know, like those are the kind of things that people think when they're under immense pressure. And it's that ability to recognize that, yes, it might feel difficult. Yes, it might feel uncomfortable. And there's a real ally there right? There is an ally in that energy that underlines pressure. And so our ability to start to use it productively can be a real tailwind as we go through periods like we've been through. And then that really goes back to how we relate to importance, uncertainty, and volume, which is what we can start to get into a bit if, if you're up for it, because those are really the three toggles for for action.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely interested in that. I, I couldn't help but think of my default mindset, or, or, or let me put it better this way, my physical reaction to pressure. Every single time I've got to go out on stage and speak, small or, or large scale, I always have to use the bathroom. and and yep. And I don't have to go, but I have to go. Like, that's that is just constant and it's every i've noticed it over 25 plus years now or more that every single time that's just where my mind and body goes to and so you know i'll i'll do that i'll take care of it <laughs> but the feeling the thought the state of that doesn't go away until i then step out onto the stage then it goes away then i'm in the moment yep. so yeah
1: yeah well and i you know i think certainly for peak pressure moments like a big stage It's the anticipation that is where the real pressure management needs to occur, right? You know, most folks, when they're in the performance, that's where it is much easier to be task-focused. It's much easier to, to, you know, approach a state of flow. You know, we don't always get there every time, but it is easier to be in the moment. You know, Jeremiah Brown, an Olympic rower, his phrase is, waiting is a disease. It's the wait, it's the lead up in which the tools of managing pressure really matter in those peak pressure moments, because that, of course, determines, you know, what's the state that you're going to be in, you know, when you have to start the performance. And I think your example is actually a great one in that there are many different ways you could label that physiological response, right? You could try to push it away and go, yeah, you know what, I I don't really need to do this. I'm going to, you know. And as Carl Jung said, a hundred years ago, what we resist persists, right? It's likely to then just become more of a thought loop like, well, but I think I do. What if, you know, what if I really, you know, what if this goes wrong? You know, then we start to get into all those situations. And the other thing is, how are you framing those physical sensations, right? When this stuff starts to arise in your body, whether it's elevated heart rate, sweating hands, uh, hair standing up on your arms, you know, rapid breathing. If you go, oh my God, I'm about to choke, you're going to have a very different outcome in the performance than if you go, okay. I'm getting really excited about this, right? might be exactly the same internal feeling, exactly the same physiological responses. You know, when we choose to frame them a little bit differently, when we anticipate them, and and that's what's happened to you over 20 to 25 years is it doesn't throw you, right? It's like, okay, this is what happens as pressure approaches. I should expect this. This is normal. This is a part of the performance equation. Then we can start to use it more productively right? It's the layer of interpretation that we put on top of our physiological symptoms. That's the stuff that starts to throw us a little bit and trigger some of the negative feedback loops.
0: Yeah. Well, and I want to jump into the toggles, but one more thing, you you saying that just made me realize something and you can correct me if I'm wrong here and, and add to this or jump on it or whatever. So to go back to the having to use the bathroom situation. So over time, one, recognizing that that's my unconscious response to the peak performance slash pressure situation. That's what I do. That's what happens. It's not my choice. It just, it kind of happens, but that I will then go and change the facts of that by not having to go anymore. Cause I just go and then I'm done. No, you don't have to go anymore. You've already done it. So I, I change the facts a little bit, but that yep. doesn't make that feeling go away. And, and, and this is just in, in the moment realization. I'm wondering if part of me physically is like, oh, no, the worst thing that could happen right now is for you to go out on that stage and like pee your <laughs> pants, right?
1: You, you are you are capping your downside uncertainty, right? Yes. That's what you're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah,
0: absolutely. So that's that. That's where I'm coming from here on this. But yeah, let's jump into the toggles a little bit, unless you have any more insight on that.
1: No, I think that's great. Let's go for it.
0: Okay. So so again the toggles are for the pressure equation. Let's accurately describe it. Like we said before, importance, uncertainty and volume. So let's take these one at a time. So let's start with importance.
1: So the headline on all three of these is just like pressure itself, they are all kind of double agents. They are all simultaneously helpful and potentially not helpful. And so importance is a great example of this. You know, I talked about it at the jump that you know, we don't feel pressure if there isn't importance, if the outcome doesn't matter to us in some way. And, and that's a good thing, right? It means if I'm experiencing pressure, I must be doing something that's important to me, which is, which is good, right? We want to live meaningful lives where we're in important situations. And so when you look at importance, how we relate to importance over the long haul, the grind that we've talked about is almost diametrically opposed to how we want to relate to it in peak pressure moments, right? Because when we're going through the grind... Our number one job with importance is to bring it as close as we can. Maintaining energy and motivation through the grind requires a clear line of sight from what I'm doing to the question, why am I doing this, right? What matters to me about going through this? Why is it worth it to go through this? How is this meaningful in some way to me? And so when we're going through the grind... We got to really consciously start to connect what we're doing to importance, because when importance is elusive, that's when pressure starts to feel hollow over the long haul. It starts to feel just meaningless, like we're just carrying a burden for no reason. You know, in the long haul, we really want to ask ourselves, like, how is this helping me grow? You know, what am I strengthening right now? What am I learning right now? How am I making progress right now? We want to think about how, you know, enduring this pressure is contributing to to my family, to society, to my company, to my team. We want to think about, you know, how is this pressure connecting me? How is it bringing me closer to people that I care about? We want to ask the kind of questions that are going to connect us to the meaning of the pressure that we're bearing. When we are approaching peak pressure moments, on the other hand, it's the exact opposite, right? Because what happens in peak pressure moments, we start to fixate on how important this is to me right? Like, oh my God, you you know, this, this sales pitch, it's going to make or break my income for the next year. It's a test for my manager, whether I'm ready to step up into the big leagues and deserve a promotion. You know, my colleagues are watching to see if I've got what it takes or if I'm a fraud, you know, like we start to create all this importance around our peak pressure situations. And so the thing that we actually need to do in those situations, as opposed to pulling importance close is we got to get it off our back right? We actually have to try to push it away a little bit, you know, by thinking about, okay, what's not at stake here? Like, what are the really important things in my life that are not going to change regardless of the outcome of this situation? And so there is this kind of toggle in importance, which is, you know, we talked about the difference between preparation or anticipation versus performance. During the preparation phase, during the long haul leading up to call it a big sales call, I actually want to be thinking about, Why this matters to me, because that's going to give me the energy to do the prep work that I need to do, right? That's the energy to prepare. When I'm walking into the room with the client, I got to flip completely and think about the fact that regardless of how this goes, at the end of the day, I'm going to go home to my house with my family, a cold beer, a nice dinner, and I'm going to be the same person I was an hour ago, because that's the stuff that frees me up to perform. So again, this notion of being ambidextrous, it's kind of like my ability to toggle back and forth between really pulling it close, but then when I need to, being able to see it in perspective and not, you know, overweighting the stakes by, you know, by inflating importance.
0: Oh, I love this. It it does, in a sense, it's a mental shift. I mean, you're, you're talking about literally toggling and flipping, and it's a shift between macro to micro and back again like I was talking about earlier with the macro level of all the different things in the world that I've got to do and they're all in the right place. And yet micro because where I am right now is what I'm focusing in on. And yet in that situation, as you're walking into it, that is, you're thinking, okay, I do care about this. This is important, but at the end of the day, my performance, if it doesn't work out, isn't going to end me.
1: Exactly. And I think, you know, it's this tension of I have to see what I'm doing is important. Like what I don't want people doing is just discounting, you know, trying to be really sort of blasé and, you know, the, the detachment of, hey, you know what, if we get it, we get it. If we don't, no big deal. You know, that's not what we're going for here. It is this balance of seeing what I do is important while at the same time not being overwhelmed by what's at stake in that tension and how we kind of, you know, adjust where we're at on that continuum because we can get tripped up in both ways. You know, we can have a really tough time seeing, you know, why what we do matters to ourselves. You know, can feel at times... Uh, a little bit like, you know, we're all in it for ourselves. And this is just, you know, we get into the meaning of life questions, right? Like, why why bother? What's the point of this all? That's one way we can fall off the rails. But the other way we can go off the rails is, you know, we just lose the ability to see what we're doing in perspective. And this was a theme, you know, for for a number of Olympic athletes, you know, that I spoke to, which was, of course, the Olympics is important, right? These people have invested thousands of hours of their lives, you know, decades, and it comes down to one race or one match. And at the same time, it's a sport, it's a game, it's a competition, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and there's life after sport. Most of these folks are in their 20s. So it's that ability to simultaneously hold that both things are true, where I think we find the kind of Goldilocks zone.
0: Yeah, to be able to say in in that specific instance, to be able to say in one instance, this is my career, I'm going to perform my best, but to also be able to flip to it's just a sport, And back again and back again. And that's not easy, but I'm assuming, like most skills, this is a muscle that as over time you do it more and more, you strengthen it and it becomes air quotes easier.
1: Yeah. I think it, it, you know, it starts with awareness, right, Eric? And first step is I'm aware of, okay, this is a thing. I need to be balancing a sense of importance with, you know, an ability to get perspective. And I need to be able to check in a little bit. And the more you practice that discipline of, hey, where am I at on this right now? Well, like, am I artificially overloading the stakes on this thing? Or, you know, am I a little bit too far from importance and I, you know, I don't really see why this matters. Okay, once I find that set point, now there's some tools that I can, you know, most of the tools like I talked about are really questions, right? This is about where do you direct your attention and being conscious about, am I choosing to focus my thoughts on adding importance here, like really connecting to to the things or am I choosing to focus my attention more on stability? right? The important things that are not at stake in this situation. You're absolutely right. The more that we work that muscle that starts with awareness and then continues with my ability to direct my attention, you know, the better and
0: easier it gets over time. Okay, good. So what about uncertainty? What's the toggle there?
1: Yeah, so uncertainty, you know, I think this is one that a lot of people find quite acutely painful. You know, as human beings, we aren't particularly well built to handle uncertainty. You know, there's a wonderful book called The Charisma Myth by Olivia Fox Cabane, and she, she cites some research where if you put people in MRI machines, the brain responds similarly to uncertainty as it does to physical pain, right? These are, these are both things that we try to flee, that we try to minimize. And I think to toggle with uncertainty is, you know, when we are in our peak pressure moments, uncertainty is a real performance killer. You know, the more uncertainty starts to build in our peak pressure moments, the more that attentional tunnel starts to close in on us. And all of a sudden we lose access to abilities that are usually right at our fingertips. We lose our ability to call, you know, knowledge to mind that we can typically recall. We retreat to our, uh, you know, whatever is automatic to us. We lose our capacity for, you know, learning and growth. And like, there's just a lot of stuff that happens as uncertainty multiplies in peak pressure moments. And so really the imperative around uncertainty under peak pressure is, Eliminate it any way that you can, right? Start to build certainty through taking direct action as quickly as possible. And the metaphor that I stumbled into for this that I love comes from a guy named Martin Reeder, who's a beach volleyball player. He went to the the Rio games in 2016. And he talks about how in beach volleyball, there are a lot of things out of your control, right? Your opponents are out of your control, the refs out of your control, the weather's out of your control, you're you're literally standing on shifting sands, like it's not just a metaphor that you're actually on, you know, a very uncertain playing field. And, And he said, the only thing that you actually have control over is your serve. When you are standing behind the service line with the ball, you are in complete control. So, you know, his metaphor was, in the situations where I find myself facing significant uncertainty, I always want to ask myself, what's my serve? All right, what's my serve in this situation? And so I think that's just a really powerful question when we are in peak pressure moments and we feel like things are starting to get away from us, like they're spinning out of our control. It's what's my serve in this situation? What's the one thing that I can start to control? Because the second I start to control it, uncertainty begins to abate a little bit. And this might be a very practical thing, but it also could be something like you know my breathing, right? It's something always within my control. Because the second I start to get my physiology under control, I start to build certainty. The second my heart rate starts to normalize, my respiration rate starts to normalize. So that's one. Sir, certainly in sport, what do they turn to? Routine, right? When everything else is out of your control, when the refereeing's not going your way, when your opponent's playing the game of their life. Let's say you're in a tennis match. What do players do? They have a routine that they execute before every single time that they, you know, step up to the line in a point because that routine builds a sense of certainty, right? It starts to create a little pocket of certainty amidst the sea of uncertainty. So that's one side of the toggle on uncertainty is in peak pressure. We want to just act, right? Find our serve and act. Now, over the long haul, direct action, which is so helpful in peak pressure moments, like find control and act, because it's so helpful in peak pressure moments often it becomes kind of a default mode for high performers. And actually that default mode of act, 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 that's what becomes profoundly unhelpful over the long haul, right? Because over the long haul, if we try to take direct action on all the uncertainty in our lives, we are going to burn out. There's a bunch of uncertainty that we cannot tame. And if we try to act on all of it, it actually just feeds a sense of helplessness. And so the corollary to finding your serve and taking direct action in your peak pressure moments is We got to get to a place where we can embrace the inevitable uncertainty over the long haul. And that, from my perspective, really starts with this ability to come to terms with the fact that we cannot control the future, but at the same time, get ourselves to a place where we fervently believe that things will work out as they should in the end. That's what allows us to embrace uncertainty, right? Having that belief that at the end of the day, things will work out as they should. That's what frees me up. From you know, manically trying to control all the uncertainty over the long haul. So, so that's kind of the toggle there is this ability to act, take direct action, find your serve and get to a place where you can embrace the uncertainty that cannot be tamed.
0: And that actually speaks to, again, going back to the productivity realm with the uncertainty factor here. A lot of people that's when they get into that, okay, just act, 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 act. It's responding to every single Slack message or email or call or social message, et cetera, as it comes at them, because that satiates to a point, but isn't sustainable and is definitely not productive and not helpful. I mean, you may be knocking things out left and right, but again, you're not really gaining any true traction. And instead it's that Okay, segmented, focused blocks of time for specific things, moving them to ideally completion of a certain step or completion altogether, that helps. But even outside of the actual working, taking rest, breaks, interval breaks, evening breaks, rituals, routines, as well as weekends or mornings and evenings, all of those sustained breaks where it's you're not constantly working and you're seeing that, oh, I'm not swatting flies left and right to maintain my certainty. Wait, things aren't falling apart. And that does right. bleed into what you were talking about where, oh, no, things are going to work out.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And and actually, you know, a lot of what you're talking about here, I think, also loads onto the third piece, you know, the volume piece big time because. When people experience pressure from volume, which I think you just very memorably described as, as swatting flies, I think that's a great metaphor. You know, often when it's volume, just the sheer amount of stuff that we have to do that's creating pressure for people, I do think, you know, the default tool in the, the toolkit that people reach for is time management. They go, okay, I got all this stuff to do. I need to get more efficient at doing this stuff, which is which is logical. The problem is time management is a trap it's a track, right? Like at the end of the day, what happens to people who get more efficient at swatting flies, who become more efficient with their time? Do they get more volume or less volume? They get more volume, right? The more efficient I get, the more volume I'm going to accrue. It's like digging a hole at the beach, right? The bigger the hole I dig, the more water is going to rush in to fill it. If you free up an hour on your calendar in most large organizations, within about 20 minutes, you're going to get a calendar. But it's like, hey, I see you've got a free hour tomorrow at one. We got this project that I'd love you to join the kickoff for, right? like boom. And so, you know, time management, listen, is a wonderful tool. It's an important tool. It's a vital productivity tool. And it's not the solution to pressure, right? It's a productivity strategy. It's a great productivity strategy. It doesn't alleviate pressure. It just creates more room for additional volume. And so I think to your point, where we go with volume is, you know, twofold. The first is, if we are going to live a busy, high-performing life, We do have to invest in the physical platform to handle volume, right? There's just a raw sort of how much capacity do I have as a human being for volume? And that, that really is, you know, sleep, nutrition, movement. It's the basics of, you know, how much energy am I carrying into the day? And therefore, what is my kind of physical capacity? The flip side to that is my ability to be ruthless in pruning the root causes of volume, which are the tasks that I take on, the decisions that I need to make. And the distractions that I permit that pull me away from that stuff. And those are the three real action areas when it comes to volume: is my ability to act on tasks, my ability to limit decisions, and my ability to, to the extent possible, uh, insulate myself from distraction.
0: Ugh. I don't know where else to go here, to be honest. Like You're tying it because this is exactly what we talk about on the show. So I I feel like I need to list out, like, here's three more episodes to jump in on all (laughs) all these toggles that reinforce what you're saying. And so this is a great place, I think, to to press pause and say, I mean, from what I'm taking away here, it, it has a lot to do with, like usual, learning what the skill is and then strengthening it over time. Mm-hmm. it's macro and micro thinking. And let's see what else. It's definitely knowing how to say no and yep. place boundaries. And let's see what else uh, you jump in here too. I'm I'm going to keep thinking, but my brain is going many different places.
1: <laughs> yeah. Where, where I, you know, I, I think one of the things that is so central to this from my perspective is and I think this gets at your macro versus micro point, you know, so much of pressure is attentional control. Where do I choose to focus the spotlight of my attention? You know, human beings are wired as, as I'm sure you've talked about before on this podcast in a way that, you know, we are really built to do one thing at a time, right? Our attention can only really focus on one thing at a time. And the things that can throw us under pressure are when our attention starts to focus on the stuff that's counterproductive, right? On the fact that, oh my God, all of a sudden my my shoulders are tense, my breathing's rapid. Like, oh, did you see that speaker before me? That guy was unbelievable. Like, are people going to expect me to be like that? You know, when our attention gets away from us, that's when our default, you know, fight, freeze, or flee responses start to kick in. Pressure is this ability to consciously direct your attention, right? So if we look at what we said about importance, Eric, it's like, Sometimes I need to really consciously direct my attention to pulling it close, like ask myself, how am I growing through this? How is this making me stronger? Sometimes I got to direct it in another direction by asking myself, what's not at stake here? Right. What won't change in this situation? Uncertainty. Sometimes I got to direct it to my serve. Like, what can I control here? What's the one thing in this? See, you know, other times I got to direct it to, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You know, you know, what am I most worried about in this situation? Can I get comfortable with that? So I I do think this this ability to toggle micro macro is all rooted in my ability to notice what I'm paying attention to and then have the attentional cues, which usually take the form of questions. That's the easiest way to direct our attention to point that spotlight in a place that's going to be productive for us. And that's kind of one of the threads that really ties it all together for me.
0: Certainly. Honestly, I think everybody needs to grab the book. I, I, I don't always say that. Actually, I probably do always say that, but what I, and I do always mean it too. I'm not trying to say, it. this is hilarious, hilarious. This is a, it's a moment of truth. It's behind the scenes. I'm leaving this all yeah. in, by the way. And because I love this, I, I really do think that, you know, that after talking to you, I honestly think I need to reread the book because I feel like now I've got on a different set of glasses and I can awesome. see it from a, an even different set of productivity eyes. Hmm. So this book will definitely be one of the, the books that I'm referencing in terms of when people ask me, hey, what's the next productivity book that I need to read or get into? This is going to be one of the next ones, because I've got like a five or 10, depending upon who's asking, uh, list. <laughs> Th- this book's on the list, both those lists. Awesome. So there you go. That's Dane. awesome.
1: Well, I really appreciate that, Eric.
0: The book's been out for a little bit here. It's out now. People can go grab it. Is there any best place for you that we can direct people to so they can find out more get a sample chapter those kinds of you know things that happen
1: yeah absolutely so you can find me at dane Jensen.com uh, and uh, yeah absolutely you can download the the first chapter for free there uh, and there's links you know to all of your favorite book resellers to grab a copy it's obviously you know available hardcover audible all that kind of good stuff so however you like to consume it but uh, that's the best place to start your journey you can also find me on I'm most active on LinkedIn and Twitter uh, just my name on LinkedIn at Dane Jensen on Twitter and always happy to engage Love hearing from people who are reading the book and want to chat.
0: Awesome. Perfect. Well, I will make sure to link up to all of that in the show notes so that people can easily find it. And honestly, I think people can tell from listening this far into the episode that I really enjoyed talking with you and can't wait to see what you come up with next and open invitation.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Eric. It's my pleasure. It was a great conversation. Appreciate it.
0: Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Dane Jensen. I love this one, actually. It's a very, very fun conversation for me to have with him. Rethinking that equilibrium between pressure and flexibility, and it just it kind of blew my mind, as you could probably tell as you were listening. So, if you got this far, you you heard the whole thing, you know that uh, I interjected some stuff I didn't plan on sharing, <laughs> but that's totally fine. And uh, yeah, such a good book and such a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Would you do me the favor if you got something out of this episode, would you do me the favor of sharing this episode with somebody you know needs to hear this one? To do that, all you need to do is hit that share button in your podcast player app choice, or head on over to the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next episode.